And welcome back to the Inadvertent Whistle podcast. I am Scott Bachanson, joined by my good friend, Adam Brick. And Adam, we have a special guest with us today. And, and today we're going to talk about the rule changes that have just come out. And I thought I'd let you introduce our guests and also uh, just talk about rule changes in general. Sure, Scott. Um, I know that many of our listeners um, will be disappointed to know that our special guest is not the best interpreter in North America, uh, <laughs> Mike Preston. I, I, I know people will be disappointed. I am too. But we have a more than capable replacement to discuss the rule changes for this coming season. None other than Richard Dickie V. Vaughn to discuss rule changes. Who else but Dickie V. and me to have the discussions about rule changes? I am sure if Mike Preston is listening now, he is probably fainted, and um, somebody needs to wake him up. So we're, we're honored to have Dickie V here, who actually um, is now um, an honored member of Cardinal Basketball Officials Association, having just received the Ralph Gordon Award for his service and dedication to not only Cardinal basketball, but the Northern Virginia basketball community. And so congratulations, uh, Richard, on that uh, momentous occasion in your life. It was a pretty cool night. I was not expecting it, and I'm very appreciative of it. But the one thing about getting an award like that is it reminds you that you are now officially old. And that the finish correct. line is near. So uh, uh, it's both honoring and depressing at the same time. But There's no question the finish line is closer than the starting line. Oh, no doubt about it. But the yes. uh, it is very appropriate that both Adam Brick and I are on people who could probably eliminate roughly seventy five percent of the rule book right now if you made us Lord High Rules Commissioner for a day. Uh, so for us to talk about rules, this could be very entertaining. But I will well, say, okay, yeah, I was just going to say a little hint. I'm actually going to applaud the Federation this year. I think there's a couple of good things in here which they haven't done in recent years. So. Um, I'm not going to be jump right in and applaud because the very first note on rule 2.13 requiring a shot clock operator sit at the scores and timers table. Uh, if using the shot clock, I think is an outstanding rule change. Um, I just hope that there's a diagram that goes along with it. If not, I am happy to draw one, uh, for the officials so they can, they know exactly where the shot clock operator should go. I'm just curious which schools position their shot clock operator now in a location other than the scorer's table. Do we like give a, a parent the the clicker device six rows up in the stands? I, um, I do well, get a kick with out the of the announcer. Remember, we have some places where the announcer's in some closet somewhere. Well, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I, I mean, maybe they. The old gyms where you had the crow's nest up in the top, maybe that was. Uh, I don't know. I can hear all uh, the coaches that might be, or the coach that's listening to this going, if VHSL would just adopt the shot clock, we wouldn't care where they sit. I can hear it now. <laughs> Amen. Shot clock yeah. is long, 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 long overdue. Um, you know, the Federation allows it now, so it's up to the state governing bodies to adopt it. VHSL did their whole survey last time. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think it comes down to the haves and the have-nots. There are some schools that have no problem paying for it, and I think there are some schools that don't like the idea of putting a shot clock in and then having to pay another clock operator. But very frustrating. I also, I also think it's about finding competent people to operate the shot clock. It's not just the expense. Very true. Um, I mean, how many games do we have where we have clock issues? Um, and admittedly, so, when when we do private schools up here, uh, you've got schools that have really good shot clock operators. And then every once in a while, you get one that uh, you got to hold their hands a little bit. So if you do implement it, there will be a break in period on that. There's oh, no yeah. question about it. Yep, no, no doubt. So um, we can move on to the next what rule change or two, which I am going to abstain from discussion. <laughs> because I refuse to talk about uniforms and rules. So I am muting myself and letting you two guys handle those. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the first one, and this is rule three, four, five, it says requires uniform bottoms on teammates to be like colored. 
while allowing different styles of uniform bottoms. And the rationale is that it clarifies that teammates must all wear like colored uniform bottoms and may wear multiple styles that align with the language of other NHS rules. And, and this is just simply, look, the kid's not going to fit in this, this uh, type of short or this size, so we had to find a different one for him. <clears throat> and it basically just takes us out of the mix on that. Um, most of the teams are really – one of the things I've noticed about the teams, especially when they submit their uniform requests in, is they really do care what they look like. So I don't think this is necessarily that big of an issue. But I will say that it just gives freedom to the coaches a little bit more. So, Dickie, I'm assuming you probably don't have much to say on this one. I do have something to say on the next one, though. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I'm i the world's worst person with uniforms. Uh, my rule has always been, can I tell a difference between the two teams? If I can tell the difference and I don't think they're confusing to anyone, let's play ball. Um, I, I Rulemaking is a lot like uh, lawmaking in Congress. There's a lot of fluff and a lot of language that gets put into things that just quite frankly isn't necessary if people apply common sense rules. Uh, granted, we don't always do that, but uh, I wish more of us did. Uh, the uniform rules, it makes me want to pull my hair out. Um, this is the part where I do get critical of the Federation. It's like every cycle, we've got lots of opportunities to change rules that make the game of basketball better, the, the game play, game action. And instead, it feels like we get nothing but fluff on uniforms and hairstyles and what you can put in your hair and what you can't put in your hair and how long the shorts are and the number of colors of undershirts now. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. And for me, it, and if you can tell the difference, let's play ball. But uh, um, yes, as somebody who has submitted rule changes before and, and we've gotten one passed, Gil Mack and I wrote the coach's box rule being changed from the, the 14 feet you have to stand in here to the 28 foot mark. Yep. Um, in some cases, maybe reconsidering that one, but <laughs> there's always one guy somewhere in the Midwest that has submitted like 10 to 12 different rule changes on uniforms. And, and that includes what you can have in your hair and nails and all this other stuff. And I almost just wish, they would tell this guy to go away because he takes up so much space. But <clears throat> this next rule change is just one of the ones that's kind of, I look at and I just shake my head. And this is in rule three, five, six. It says allows undershirts to be worn under the visiting team jerseys to either be black or a single solid color that is similar to the torso of the jersey. And all teammates wearing undershirts must wear the same solid color. I have. I've just the only uniform thing that that I pay attention to is if the shorts are way too far down or if the undershirts don't match the color of the main jersey. I just feel like it's getting into this AAU style where anybody can wear whatever they want underneath it. Now, they're saying that it has to be the predominant color of the way uniform jersey or it has to be a black undershirt. And I'm just going to tell you we are going to have to deal with this and I'm just frustrated by it, but we're going to have home teams trying to wear black shirts underneath. We're going to have visiting teams have a blue, blue Jersey and some kids have blue shirts. Some kids have black shirts. And so, and then we're going to have coaches go, what do you mean? It's, it's what the rule says. And it's just going to be frustrating. And by the way, we're going to have officials that are just going to allow it to happen because we suck at implementing this. Dickie. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's funny. I don't know if a lot of people know this. This this rule would actually codify something that was going to happen at the 6A state championship game this year. Um, I was standing in the, uh, at VCU as Hayfield was getting ready to take the floor, and Hayfield traditionally wears orange as the road team, uh, and all of their kids were wearing black undershirts, which at the time is deemed illegal. You know, it's got to be a, a shirt that matches the orange, and Orange is not necessarily an easy shirt to match with an under undershirt. Uh, so a bunch of the kids had on black and 
someone noticed before they took the floor and they went and told Hayfield before they took the floor, you had to remove the black undershirts. So um, this now codifies in a way that would allow the away team to wear the black shirt under their colored jersey, which, you know, again, not my cup of tea. I can tell the difference between orange and white. And if the orange team wants to wear black, that's fine. I do think you have a good point. If a team's wearing white jerseys and they want to wear black undershirts, then it, maybe it gets a little tricky. Uh, but you see the guys in the NBA now. I've noticed a lot of the undershirts in the NBA, they're either wearing white or black, no matter what the color of the jersey or the uniform is. So, um, yeah. If you're a good referee, you should be able to tell the difference. <clears throat> yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff that comes from the NBA that is good, and there's a lot of stuff that comes that is not good. But now that we've gone through our uh, our uniform part of the rule changes, I'm going to welcome back Mr. Brick. And <laughs> I was Adam, able to take a little nap, so thank you guys for covering that. <laughs> this is one is one that's probably the most talked about one, and I think that this is this is something that has come from the NBA as well as the NCAA women's. And 481 eliminates the one and one for common fouls beginning with the 17th foul and a half. And now it establishes the bonus as two free throws. So there's no more one and one. Two free throws awarded for a common foul beginning with the team's fifth foul in each quarter. And it resets the fouls at the end of the quarter. So when you get to the fifth foul, we're shooting two in that quarter. If you get to seven, we're still shooting two. The only time you would not shoot two if it was, uh, as they say, and one, mostly when Rick Dickey V has a plate of the basket. But I would say that there's um, there's some benefits to this. The, some of the rationale that they wrote is um, it allows teams to adjust to their play and not carrying over fouls from quarters one to three and two to four. Um, you know, if there's if the teams get out, especially early in the season and they're they're or they're coming back from, from a holiday break. We usually see they're a little more sloppy. And so when that happens, you know, at the end of the first quarter, if the fouls are eight and eight, the whole second quarter, we were shooting one on one and probably double bonus very quickly for eight minutes. Now we reset and they have to hopefully be able to uh, adjust to what's going on. So there's a lot of different pieces to this. And I have some things that I want to talk about about officials, but I want to give you guys a chance to jump in. So, Adam, you want to. You want to start? I'm kind of indifferent to it. Um, I don't necessarily, at least I haven't seen the issue that they're talking about minimizing risk of injury um, in regards to rebounding opportunities and stuff. I, I mean, I didn't, I, I don't really think I've seen that. Um, again, I, I'm fine with it. It doesn't, uh, it probably maybe is a pace of uh, play issue. Uh, hopefully benefiting that, but I, I honestly couldn't care less whether we continued the old way or did it this way. Dickie? I don't have an opinion. Um, I'm a big proponent of it, and there's two things that come into play. And one, I hope I'm not stepping on some of your um, color commentary later as to how we deal with it as an official, but uh, I am all for as much as we can a consolidation and an application of a uniformity of rules across organized basketball. I don't like that there's so much difference now between high school basketball, women's college, men's college, and NBA, and, and even FIBA for that matter, international rules. I'd like to see a more uniform set of rules across all levels of basketball. It'd be easier for all players to understand. Certainly would be easier for referees to get. Um, the one and ones have been antiquated. I mean, listen, kids, they don't shoot free throws well and haven't for some time. Um, I just don't think the one and one's been that big a deal, uh, to begin with. We only shoot it three times a, a half each team if you get to that point. Um, so I do like the idea of resetting the fouls at the end of each quarter. And from an official's perspective, I think one of the underrated things about this is it gives officials a chance if you were maybe a little too tight in the third quarter of a game, now you got a chance to reset yourself in the fourth quarter and maybe get the game back into a pace place where, like Adam's talking about, we're talking about pace of play, game flow, 
where we haven't chopped up the game with maybe a couple of cheap fouls early in the third quarter, and now we put ourselves in a place where we're going to be shooting free throws all night. Um, you're you're now going to have a chance to go back and in the fourth quarter start with a clean slate. Now, you're still going to charge personal fouls on players. That's not going to be a reset. So you, as officials, we have to be cognizant not to be putting cheap fouls or non-existent fouls on players, particularly good players. Um, but we do, in terms of game flow and team basketball, I like, hey, let's get a clean slate in the fourth quarter, uh, particularly if we've got a good competitive game. Let's start it at 0-0 on fouls, and let's, let's have at it. So to that end, I'm, I'm a big proponent of this. And, and Scott, before you uh, chime in and, and give us your thoughts, the one thing it, <clears throat> it does help is, I guess it eliminates the likelihood of, a, of correctable error because instead of shooting – uh, mistakenly shooting either two or not shooting the one-on-one, it, it makes it pretty, I think it makes it clearer of when we're shooting free throws, but yep. right. That's, um, I don't know. I don't know how to fix correctable errors. So we can eliminate one of them. That's even, that's better. Those, um, all those points are really, really good. The thing I would add is this now brings strategy into the game for the coaches. And one of the things we as officials have to do is, we have to understand that that strategy can happen. There are a lot of times that you will see the NBA if they have a foul to give. So that means maybe they have three team fouls. There's less than 10 seconds to go in the quarter. And the team's bringing the ball up and you see the coach give them a signal or yellow color. And now they are taking a foul because now the offense has to restart and reset their offense as opposed to having any kind of flow. So there might be a hand check that happens as the player starts his drive to the basket uh, outside of the three-point arc, and it might be four seconds to go, and now we have uh, a foul being given. So one of the things that I think the NBA officials do better than anybody in the world is they communicate with each other on the court. So if you watch the playoffs, and as we get into the finals, we're dealing with the best of the best. And you'll see when we get to the end of the quarter, where you might see a, a referee ra raise their finger and, and start hitting their wrist or their their forearm. And what they're doing is they're communicating with the partners, one foul to give, one foul to give. Um, so that gives us a better understanding that they may strategically try to foul here. Because what ends up happening is we've been living in this world of make sure the foul at the end of the quarter is a good one. And now a strategy may be used and we we uh, decide that we're going to pass on it because we have this mentality and it creates a steal. And then a coach gets upset. Hey, we were trying to give one um, and we miss out on that. So I know that we're going to be doing some training with this in Cardinal. I know that I'm going to be reaching out to either Scott Foster or Eric Lewis or both to do a video with me on what this looks like, because. The other aspect is then they start fouling harder when we get an intentional foul or a coach wants to give a team foul and somebody away from the play gives a bear hug and the, the player misapplies what they what the coach was teaching. So there's there's a lot to learn on both sides, but I think there's some strategic value from a coaching perspective that is going to be great. But we as officials have to be ready and cognizant of that and we need to train our officials for that. So. That, that's what I would add to what you guys have already shared. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And going back to the shot clock thing, I think that's another reason why I'm a proponent of the shot clock. It forces um, forces coaches to be more strategic with time management, possession management, um, trying to get a two-for-one at the end of a quarter. Um, I'd love to see that put into our game. And this is sort of an extension of that. Uh, what your your strategic fouling, as we call it, uh, while you're also trying to maximize the clock. So the good coaches will jump on this early, and you're right. There will be some that are probably a little quicker to others to adopt a, a strategy where, hey, if I can insert a player in and give a foul and disrupt an offensive set at the end of a quarter – and it's not really going to penalize me because I know the foul counts are going to be reset. Yeah, absolutely. I suspect. Um, I think we can all sit here and we've got a pretty good idea of the coaches that think in that kind of capacity. Now, the question is, 
we need to get all of our other officials into that mindset where they understand when that, those fouls are going to be given. But you're, you're absolutely right. You don't want to get to a point where uh, we don't call the cheap one and it just escalates into a harder foul. So speaking of strategy, let's talk about the next one, which is establishes four different throw-in spots nearest the 28-foot mark along each sideline and nearest the three-foot spot outside the lane. Uh, and so if you have a, a foul or a violation, like a kickball on the defense, it can only go to one of four spots. It can go to the spots at the 28-foot mark on either side of the court, table side or opposite the table, or it can go to the three-foot mark just outside the lane line on either side. I love this rule for a couple of reasons. One is it just makes it a lot easier for everybody to know where the play is going to be, especially if there's a timeout, where's the ball going to be? Well, we know it's going to be at the 28 foot mark. We also know that there's an opportunity for coaches to be able to just focus more on throw-in spots and plays from those throw-in spots as opposed to being down deep in the corner where they're at a little bit more of a disadvantage. And then the other thing is for officials, uh, I, I would tend to say that one of the areas that we don't do really well is get the throwing spots right. You know, we have a, a foul above the, the three-point arc and we put it on the end line. And so I think those are some, some things that will be really good about it. Now, it doesn't mean that if the ball gets tipped and it's out of bounds that we go to those throwing spots. It's only on fouls, violations, or coming out of a timeout. If it's, if it's tipped and goes out of bounds, it's where that ball went out of bounds. So, um, Dickie, what do you think? I like it for the same reasons you just mentioned. Uh, there's always a couple of those odd plays that happen. You get a, a kickball or a violation in the corner, and it's a it's always an awkward throw in uh, to put somebody either baseline corner or sideline corner, and it's just an awkward place to be. And so, four uniform spots for throw ins as it relates to fouls and violations. Still, if the ball goes out of bounds, you're going to put it wherever it went out of bounds. Um, but uh, it's going to help coaches out. I mean, you can, you're going to have more design sets just based on you're always going to know where that ball's coming in. Um, I would say I wish on timeouts that we just went to the 28 foot mark uh, instead of underneath the basket. Uh, um, I think that would be a, a more uniform thing. If you call a timeout an offensive set, we're going to put it at the 28 foot mark instead of underneath. Um, but that's my own personal opinion on that. And that's the way the NBA does it. Now, the other thing the NBA does that I really like is if you call a timeout, you get to pick which side of the court you want on regardless. Yeah. Um, for us, I would say that if we look at the lane lines, if they extend up to the division line. As long as they're in the front court, then we're going to put the, uh, we're going to give them the, the decision where they want to put it. That would be, a, yeah. at least that's how I'm going to implement it from a common yeah. sense perspective. Adam, you want to chime in with this one or you want to get to the common sense rule changes? Yeah, I, I mean, again, um, I think that sometimes rules are made because officials can't do things like the possession arrow. We did it because referees couldn't toss the jump ball. Well, um, I don't, I personally, I don't understand how difficult it was to find a throwing spot. Um, it's really not that hard, but we yep. made it harder than it really needs to be. Um, so, yeah, this is fine. If it simplifies it even further, we'll still have people putting it in play at the, the wrong spots. That ain't, that's not changing. These rule changes ain't making some of the referees smarter. So, um, No, it, but, dumb, it dumb, dumbs it down, makes it easier for guys to uh, right. hopefully not screw it up as much. But that ball, at wherever it's at the top of the key, you still got to decide, is it going to the sideline, is it going to the end line? You still got to make that decision, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I would – I would also just say, Coach, where do you want it? <laughs> it's just me. But. So, I mean, to me, it was always easy. I mean, I, again, I know it's not in the book, but for me, if it was, if it happened inside the, the three-point line, it goes to the end line. If it happened outside the three-point line, you take it to the sideline. I always thought that was pretty easy demarcation. Yeah, and I don't think the Federation did us any favors with the official's manual because it never had the arc as the determining factor. It always had like that trapezoid. Right. Just like, just like it doesn't have it in a two-person mechanics, it doesn't have the Gene Harrison box theory, but you use the Gene Harrison box theory to referee two-man. Uh, yep. 
instead of that crazy line that goes from the free throw line uh, and the lane line where it intersects to that diagonal to the corner. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't really care. I mean, I'm just going to wait for one of my partners to tell me where the ball goes to play anyway. <laughs> and, and for officials and coaches, just a reminder, the ball has to be in the front court. Call timeout in the backcourt, throw-ins in the backcourt. You don't, there's no advancing. Um, so the ball has to be in the front court. Um, so don't get confused and implement, you know, somebody else's rules with the National Federation rules. All right. So, so the defense commits oh, – hold on now. So if a defense commits a violation in the backcourt, yep. go to the spot nearest the throw-in yep. or nearest where the violation occurred. That's right. Correct. Yeah, so, you know. I don't know. Why is it different in the front court and the back court? Well, because some officials may get confused and think, well, they called timeout and we're going to put the ball at the 28 foot mark in the front court, but they have to be in the front court for possession. So I, I witnessed a JV game last year where there was a timeout after a made basket and the official went to the coach and asked him where, which side of the, the front court did they want to the throw in? Um, very polite of it. I I didn't have any more hair to pull out, but <laughs> luckily his partner looked at him like he was crazy and he was right for doing so. But no, but again, I, I guess what I'm asking, forget the timeout situation. In the front court, if the defense kicks the ball, yes, it's going to one of the four spots. Yes. The back court, if the defense kicks the ball, it's going to a spot closest to the kick. Right in the back. Correct. Court. So the officials still have to make a determination whether it's going on the end line or the sideline. Sure. Yes. So I get. I guess my. I get. So my whole thing is, why is the front court different than the back court? Because the back court, it's only where the closest spot to the violation is in the front court. It could be any of the four spots. No, I, I understand what that is. I want to know why is it there. I, <laughs> yeah, he's questioning the logic behind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're you're repeating what I already know. What I'm asking for is what's the sense of doing it differently between the front court and the back court? Well, because the rule says so. I know the rule says so. This this part of the rules discussion has been brought to you by Mike Preston. <laughs> I mean, if we're looking for simplicity and consistency, shouldn't it be the same? Every, I don't know. What do I know? I'm cranking no, I, in order. I today. think you're right. I, I think um, you got four spots in the front court. Why not have four spots in the back court? the 28s and the, the end line, depending on where the violation occurred. I mean, well, you're not going to get not that. You're making sense. That's, yeah. you shouldn't be doing yeah. that. Yeah. So that's you're, all not gonna, you're not going to get that many in the backcourt anyway. I mean, it's the rare kickball that might come into play, but, and occasionally a timeout. But other than that, it's, you're not getting a lot of, Interrupters that require a throw-in in the backcourt, besides a foul, which so know, unaffected. So by this. Un under this rule, the team advances the ball just into the front court. They're trapped in the proverbial no man's land of the of the sideline, the the division line, and right there in the corner, they call timeout. That's advancing a few feet up to the twenty-eight foot line. Is what you tell me? Yes. They have possession in their front court. All right, so let's get to the common sense rules. Are the there any? One, yeah, the first one says allows official the official administering a throw-in to the wrong team to correct the mistake before the first dead ball after the ball becomes live, unless there's a change of possession. So basically what that means is we've handed the ball to the thrower in, they've entered the ball into the court and they're dribbling the ball to court. And we realize, Oh crap, we gave it to the wrong team. In years past, we'd say, sorry, coach, they already have it. This isn't a correctable error and they have to deal with it. Now I think the three of us and, and some other officials would say, um, no, we would just blow the whistle and say, Hey, we screwed up. It's a Hindu. Let's give them the ball back to the, to the correct team and let's start over. Um, but now well, they've to, actually to correct, to correct your correctable error. This isn't a correctable error, even under this rule. It's a mis you're, you're correcting a mistake. That's right. <laughs> Mike, I hope you're proud of me. <laughs> if he's still alive after listening to this. Yeah, he's already clutched his heart and collapsed <laughs> about 10 minutes ago. We have, we have the sixth correctable error just announced by Mr. Brick. Yeah. No, um, you announced it. 
You called it a correctable error. I said it's not. Well, I said that it's not a correctable error. That, anyway, no, you, you did. I think you I think we're coach. all in agreement with this, no. right? Oh, let me ask. I'm in agreement with you. I have a question though. So you 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 hand the ball to White, and it should be Blue's ball. White's dribbling. Ten seconds go off the clock. Whoop, beep, mistake. You put the ten seconds back on the clock. No. It's a do-over. It's a mistake. Fix the whole thing, then. I would. I, I would tell you it depends on when it is in the game. If it's yeah, you know, obviously in the last minute, I might I might change a little bit different because I have definite knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the last minute, you have definite knowledge. What if I have a definite knowledge in the first minute? Uh, I probably, I honestly, I probably just let it go. Well, it's one of those where if it happens with five minutes to go in the first quarter and it's three to two, you don't even feel like going over and delaying the game any further by trying to get the clock operator to add two seconds if you notice immediately. But if it's 68-67 in the fourth quarter and you're at 45 seconds and you inbound the ball incorrectly, and God forbid uh, referees actually do that, but hey. Far be it for me to predict what might happen. I think, yeah, I think you absolutely have to make sure you get the time back. Well, if Mike hasn't clutched his heart yet, he just did. <laughs> yeah. My, my yeah. friends in the NBA are rolling, rolling around their eyes right now, going, "Oh, Jesus, please don't do that." But yeah. Here we are. All right. Here's common sense number two: establishes that a player may step out of bounds without penalty unless they are the first to touch the ball after returning to the court or if they left the court to avoid a violation. So if a player is taps the ball, runs out of bounds, because that's where their momentum take, takes them, comes back on the court and touches the ball, it's not, they're not allowed to reestablish themselves to do that. They can't be the first one to touch it again. That's a violation. Likewise, they can't be in the – in the uh, in the lane, and we're getting close to a three second violation, and they decide to run out of bounds. Still a three second violation. What they can do though is if they're just running down across the the end line or baseline for uh, Mike Preston and others, if they're running along the baseline and they happen to step out of bounds to avoid a screen or avoid a defender, uh, and then come back into play, as long as the ball wasn't you know, loose and they're the first ones to touch it, that's okay now. So it is, it's one of those rules that we've seen called. We've seen called uh, quite uh, unfortunately in, in weird situations where somebody may have had their foot on the, on the uh, baseline or the end line and somebody has got no resellus and called that a violation. Okay, so you're going to have to help the ordering one here. How is this a rule change? What has changed? Well, so before, if a player stepped out of bounds, even if they were not gaining an advantage, they, they were penalized with a violation. You could, immediate, you could immediately call that a violation. Now, only the most persnickety or very bad official would do that. But this is one of those where the rule – was put in to address one issue and instead we get an interpretation of the letter of the law rather than the intent of the law. We were trying to eliminate the, the big wide sweep along the baseline. So you, you avoid screens and traffic down low and an offensive player is going from corner to corner and he's going to run two or three feet out of bounds and come in at the opposite corner. That's what we were trying to get out of the game, which made sense, but you know, when you get guys that want to call a guy who maybe his toe hits the line and as he's running baseline to baseline and now we're going to – the ball gets passed to him in the corner for a corner three, and now we go, beep, beep, no, 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 violation. He's out of bounds. So you're – you could you, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, other than the video from I don't know how many years ago where the, the kid ran out the door at the baseline on one side of the court and ran down the hall and came in on the other. <laughs> <laughs> you're telling me and you guys saw that right yeah hey if a kid did that in my game i'd give him a high five and say well done young man that is uh... <laughs> so, so hold on now so you're t uh, this is just mind-boggling 
So <laughs> we had people calling a dude for being out of bounds who was out of bounds, but was, never touched the basketball. Uh, uh, correct. Now, not, look, o- not often, but when it happens, it's one of those. If they ran so far wide out of bounds that it, it was one of those where you're like, what the hell is this kid doing? That calls okay. itself. So, right. So he, if he was out of the base path. Yes. But what we're saying, what we're saying is that our officials and we witnessed it at the Falls Church tournament a couple of times, Adam, when we were sitting up in the stands watching officials where a foot would hit the sideline or the end line uh, just to kind of go around a screen and an official would immediately call it. And nobody in the world knew what they were doing. Um, it's it's so basically you really have to it has to call itself. You're not going to call yeah. it because their foot's on the ground. This is a but this language doesn't completely fix it because it's still a violation if you're first to touch. So you can still have that same scenario where a guy's going corner to corner and as he's shooting across the lane at one step, he just touches the end line and gets to the other corner and they hit him in the for a corner three and we got an official who i you know by rule they're going to be right but again i don't think that's the intent of the rule we, we, uh, we need we, this needs to have the three foot wide base path rule uh on it in some way shape or form this is crazy yeah well i don't oh, think yeah. the major league baseball umpires get the uh the, the base path rule correct either especially the ones going up the first base but that's just me well this and is the inadvertent whistle this isn't the inadvertent umpire this uh, is true. Guess. so stay true. in your right. lane don't I go out. You're out of the base path. Think about the World Series with the Nationals. I'm just saying. You're out of the base path, pal. Okay. So we are done with the rule changes, but we have some points Thank of emphasis. Have oh, some no. points of emphasis. Uh, look, they, they two of the rule changes include uniforms. They're going to put uniforms, equipment, and apparel in there. Of course they do. So we'll just leave that at that. Number two is bench decorum. Now, I will tell you this. When we implemented the rule change and we submitted it, when Gilmack and I submitted it to the National Federation. Wait, did you and Gil submit a rule change to the Federation? Yes, that's the time. I hadn't heard that. I know. I know you haven't. Well, I'm here to tell you we did. So thank you, Adam. The the thought was (laughs) it would open up opportunities for the coaches to coach. And what's ended up happening is um, that is – widely been been very positive but there's now uh more freedom to move along the the sideline there's also in bench decorum i don't necessarily think honestly that the issue is mostly the head coaches i think that we're dealing with assistant coaches and others um that like to get up and chime in and and look i i'm a I'm a fan of anybody that's involved to help kids play basketball coaches assistant coaches whatever um, but there, there is a, a place and a time to have a conversation. It's not while the clock is running and you don't get up and start yelling at the official that you think they missed a call, especially if you're the assistant coach. And so we have some, we have some great assistant coaches in our area, but we also have the occasional knucklehead that doesn't understand it and thinks that their role is to, to get up and yell something if they see something. Can they do it if it's at one of the designated throwing spots? Of course they can. (laughs) So look, bench decorum is just one of those things where I've seen a little bit of what I would call a lack of um, structure in, in, in the way that coaches are on the sidelines and different responsibilities they give to people. But I've also seen this AAU mentality um, question everything. And it just makes it really difficult. Now, listen, we don't get everything right. I mean, you know, maybe you guys do, but I don't. And I think it's really important for us to to be able to have dialogue with them and be able to share with them, hey, this is what I saw. And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but that should be the end of it. And so I think bench decorum is just a, a thing that is keep, it, it continues to be an issue. Um as we get in here, you and the three of us know, I mean, between the three of us, I think we have at least a hundred years of officiating experience between the three of us. I think I'm the young, young guy of the bunch at 32 years. So if you look at, if you look at what has changed in the game, I think that we 
as officials also do a poor job of addressing it. And I think that that's an area that I would like to to train our officials a little bit more in, give them some some information. We try to do some coaches roundtables to give the coaches a voice with our officials. Um, but it seemed like every year coaches would come in and they'd all say the same thing. Nobody listens to me. Well, I mean, after doing that for five or six or seven years, um, we need a little bit more than that. We need to work together on things too, though. So, so for bench decorum, I don't know if you guys want to chime in on any of this. Well, I think for me, I mean, I, when I've taught at camp, and this is sort of an evolution. There, there used to be a school of thought, and it still exists among some officials, is I will talk to the head coach. I will not talk to the assistants. I've never been a proponent of that. I don't think it's good. Uh, I think there's a multitude of reasons to uh, integrate the assistants into your game management routine as an official uh, during timeouts. I want the head coach coaching his kids. So if he can be in the huddle and then I can have a conversation with an assistant coach about something that's happening on the floor or a question about a call that's made. I'm fine with that. And I think that should happen. And my rule has always been assistant coaches, the good ones become head coaches. So why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I want to start building relationships with people that I'm probably going to see at the head coach level, one, two, three, four, five years down the road. Um, that said, there has to be a line drawn at some point. And so for me, as long as assistant coaches, as long as they're asking questions and they're in the game and they're being respectful, it's a respectful two-way relationship. But the point that you, you make, and I think that's where officials have to draw the line, is when it becomes a cascading echo of criticism perpetually. And I will listen to the head coach a little more than I will an assistant when they're complaining. But if I hear head coach, assistant coach, deputy assistant coach, three-level assistant coach, because there's been a proliferation of assistant coaches at the high school level too, that begins to then trickle into the players. So now you're not only hearing it from head coach assistants, now you start hearing this chatter coming from behind your back on the bench. And I think that's when you have to deal with it as an official. you got to nip that in the bud on the front end. So, you know, it's – for me, it's a relationship thing that has to be built from the beginning, but it's an earned relationship. If you're an assistant coach and you're engaged and you're asking questions, even if it's a question that might be critical of a call that I made, as long as it's done in a respectful manner, hey, we can do that all night and I'm fine with it. But when it's just chirp, 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 you miss this, you miss this, travel, 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 three seconds, three seconds, three seconds. Well, then that becomes white noise. And I'm either going to, A, tune it out, or if it gets to be problematic with the bench, now I'm going to deal with it in a different way. So and that's a long-winded way of me answering it. I mean, bench decorum is always an issue that we have to manage, but um, I would tell officials, you know, try to be be flexible on the front end and then – when it's time to not be flexible, that's when you step up and say, all right, I, I, we can't deal with this anymore. It's now impacting the game. Yeah, it's a good point, Dickie. And I think we as officials, we get very, very protective. Just because an assistant coach asks a question doesn't mean that they're saying you're wrong. Correct. But we take that that way. And I think yeah. that we have to realize that sometimes we just we, we can take the information and say, I appreciate you sharing that, but here's what I saw. Correct. Now we can agree to disagree, but having a relationship with an assistant coach can only help you if it's in a, in a good, positive, constructive way. As an example, the head coach may be getting a little sideways, maybe a little frustrated with his players and starts coming after the officials. You're in a timeout. You might come by and, and, you know, have an assistant that you have a relationship with and say, Hey coach, help, help him understand that we're working hard out here. We're, we're not trying to do the, you know, it, you know, you're the get back coach, right. You know, make sure that he, yep. he doesn't cross that line. Make sure, you know, um, you know, I've, I went over to a coach uh, a few years ago, uh, assistant coach. And I said, I said, listen, you know, he's, he's getting, he's getting close. You know, I know this game's important, but, and the assistant coach looked at me and he says, he wants one. I was like, I was like, what do you mean? He goes, he wants a technical foul because his kids are playing like trash. And I went, oh, all right. Well, tell him the next time I run by him, if I hear the color turquoise, then I know that he wants one. 
And sure enough, I ran by and he said turquoise and I turned around and, and I gave him a technical foul. And he even said, thank you. So um, the other thing is, to your point, I don't want to go in the huddle and tell the head coach, hey, coach, 34 is, is, is acting like right. a knucklehead. Yeah. I'll grab the assistant or I'll use my captains. I will, Absolutely. I will tell you, one of my favorite things is being able to use the assistant coach or the captain. You know, I had uh, the kid that is uh, is now, he just signed, uh, I forget with which NFL team, but he used to be the captain at Hayfield, Brian Cobbs, played football at Maryland. Um, and so we um, we looked at it and, we, you know, I said, this is a kid that can help us. And so I remember I, I have this interaction with Carlos. And I actually, you know what, Dickie, was the game that you and I worked when they played Lake Braddock. Um and you know he got a little scuffed up, you know, in the uh, in in you know going against Coach Mitras that night, and you know back and forth and up and down running. And one of the players on the team, uh, I won't say him by name, but he he was getting a little sideways. And I told the captain Brian, I said Brian, he's going to hurt you. And he said uh, he said I got him, I got him, I got him. And I, you know I happened to be by Carlos a little later, and I said Carlos, I just want to let you know that this player number so-and-so is, is starting to, to get to a point where he may hurt you. And uh, he's like, okay, I got him. I go, don't, Brian's already got him. He goes, all right, thanks. Using your assistant coaches and your captains can help you, especially in those situations. Um, and I know it's not easy for everybody to have those communication skills, but it's really important if you want to improve those relationships with bench decorum. Yeah, if I could just jump in real quick. So saying you know, when people say they don't talk to assistants, um, to me, it's, I don't take guff from assistants, right? But I'm talking to them. Yep. The head coach is the guy that gets to, to bitch and moan about a call. Especially one that I don't think was very good. Um, but the assistant coach is, uh-uh. Yep. That's where, uh, as Edgar Cartado, uh, supervisor from the Northeast Conference, used to tell folks, may he, may he rest in pieces, we don't take guff from buck privates. Only the generals get to talk like that. Um, so that's good stuff. I, I, it is. I, I mean, I think it's what you guys are saying about assistant captains is so true. Um, yeah. Now I will say one of the best lines I ever had was from uh, from a coach, um, and we've talked about him before in the show. Ed Grimm used to be the, the coach at, at Jefferson High School. One night, one of his assistants was giving me grief, and it, it actually may have even been more. Um, but I, I turned to Ed and I said, Hey, do me a favor, take care of the peanut gallery before I have to. And he said, Adam, I've tried, go ahead and give him a technical foul. And I actually <laughs> didn't know what to do at that point because I didn't want to give him a technical foul. <laughs> He's probably down by 28 at that point anyway. So uh, it was, and, and it was only in the first half. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite stories was with John Costello. May he rest in peace from Broad Run. But he had uh, a situation where a player was was getting out of hand, and as I I ran by, I said, I said, John, this this kid's really really getting uh, getting close to getting a technical foul. He goes, "Give him one. I can't control him. He's an idiot." <laughs> I just I think when you have a relationship with coaches, you can have that kind of dialogue. Um, not everybody gets to to have it, so. If, if, so first time you're meeting a coach, don't, you know, don't assume that you you can have that with every coach. But I think it's just really important for us to understand we're we're really on the same page with them. We're all, we're we're all dealing in the same world of of being involved in a game for kids, and it's not about us. It's not about them. And at the end of the night, we get to go home, and they have to answer emails from the players' parents, and that's that's something I don't want to do. So the last point of emphasis, it's it just the point of uh, it, the throw-ins in proper locations. We've already beat that to death. So I thought it might be a good time to ask you guys if you could change a rule, and, and we'll, we'll end after this, but if you could change a rule, what would be the rule change that you would want to see added or implemented at the high school level that is not currently? Uh, and, and I wouldn't, don't say shot clock because we all want it. 
it's just Virginia's got to approve it. But let, let's just ask what what what's out there. Anybody want to jump in? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd put the the restricted circle in restricted arc. I like that rule. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Restricted area is number one on my book. Um, I would even go so far as to say not only have a restricted area, I think the restricted area needs to be expanded. Uh, to me, the lower half of the paint, um, you're seeing it now more and more, particularly at Division One and uh, NBA level. And all of that trickles down. We see it in high school, too. The athleticism of players now versus 15, 20 years ago in terms of first step explosion to the hoop is it's it's amazing. And we need to we call way too many charges, particularly in high school. And it just we cannot reward defenders who are not primary defenders who are either off ball or guarding someone else. And some guy makes a fantastic move, blows to the hoop, and you think you should be able to slide over and by a position of milliseconds, we have to decide whether or not his feet are on the floor, two feet on the floor facing the opponent before he gets up. It's 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 a ridiculous way to judge block charges and and we're not good at it. We're not consistent at it at the high school level. Um, uh, I don't even think we're too terribly consistent with it at the collegiate level. The NBA guys are probably a little better than most in terms of getting the block charges right. But they get it right because they err on the side of calling it a block. And I, I just think we need to get to that level more at the collegiate level and the federation level. We talked a little offline before uh, before we went live here. And one of the proposed rules in in uh, NCAA men's basketball for next year will not only – they'll keep the restricted area, but they're, they're redefining when a uh, legal guarding position is established, trying to change the language. I think it'll say you've got to be there set with legal guarding position before the offensive player takes the first plant foot to go up. Uh, which, you know, it's a bit wordy and uh, most rule changes are, but I do think we need to get to a point where we're defining it a little more aggressively to reward the offense and not allow secondary defenders to slide over. Listen, a primary defender, if you want to be on ball and get two feet and take one right in the chest, by all means, that, let's not take that out of the game. Let's not penalize good defense on ball. But secondary defenders, that's a whole different thing to me. And these guys sliding over and taking hits, and you got these big crashes now underneath the basket, and people are getting hurt. Let's get that out of the game. If we start calling that a block consistently, I think that that gets cleaned up pretty quickly. So I'm torn on this one. I agree that I think a restricted circle could help the game, but only if adjudicated correctly. Yeah. And oh, I, no think, I think we as high school officials would screw this up more yeah. and more than we would get it right. Not only that, yeah. you see it in the college games where somebody will call a blocking foul and then point to the restricted circle <laughs> as if to say, God, I hope his feet were in there. Yeah. And I've seen I've seen officials at the college level do this. And I just I shake my head sometimes because I'm like, you know, I, I was watching a, a girls uh women's game at uh, Christopher Newport. I was watching it online with with Scott Foster, whose daughter was playing, and we, there was like three plays in a row that got them all wrong, and all three officials pointed at the restricted art. Yeah, and it was it was really frustrating because it it becomes a crutch. It doesn't become like we didn't referee the defense. We we refereed either the feet or we're hoping that they were they were there. So that's that's my only drawback with it is I'm not sure that we would adjudicate it correctly yeah and you've got no replay in high school to bail you out so you get it and wrong you get it wrong and i was going to say two things one i think scott you raised a fair point and then i was going to say if there's one rule change i don't want made is do not bring in replay mm. yeah because replay has become the ultimate crutch it's, it's killing um, the game it's killing the official colleges at well, the collegiate I, level it's a crutch yeah, and I'm going to say at the college level because, you know, and I'm a little biased having, you know, working for the NBA, but I think the NBA gets it right. They they stopped the silliness of going 
and checking for out of bounds plays in the last two minutes. If you think the call was wrong, you can use your challenge. And otherwise, they're not going to go with under two minutes like they used to do and look at every you know out of bounds play. And I think the game just it, it just flows better. Um, so I, I'll add, I've, I've submitted this rule three or four times already. It was a finalist twice. The smacking of the backboard for me is something that it's one of those things that it will call itself. Like it, when you see it, you go, oh, what the heck is that kid doing? Um, if they're trying to block a shot and they miss and their hand hits the backboard, it's nothing. Right now, the way the rule sets in the National Federation is you cannot call basket interference on that play. It's only a technical foul or it's nothing. Yep. That's that's the outcomes. And that is a deep, deep penalty for an official that gets freaked out because a big kid smacks the backboard. The, the kid that used to play at South Lakes, Emmanuel, pretty strong kid. When he went up to try to block a shot, if he missed and he hit that backboard, it shook. Well, we don't have the basket interference in our in our you know toolbox at the national federation level. So I'd like to see that change. Um, you know, we've kicked that around before. Um, I just think that it's it, it's one that's long, long overdue at the high school level, it doesn't matter. Um, I just think that we need to uh we need to fix it because there's not a lot of kids that athletic that can do it, and if they are. We shouldn't penalize their athleticism. Call it call it basket interference. The NCAA is now doing this. They they they're using uh you know the same NBA rule. Um, so it's it's just important. Yep. Again, uniformity of rules. That's what I was talking about earlier. And I would also add a little uh thing with federation rules on um goaltending. And you know, now at the higher levels, the ball touches the glass. It's a no-go. Once the ball touches the glass, you touch it, it's two points. And yep. everybody knows the rule, and it's much easier to officiate. Here in high school, you can still have this bizarre situation where a kid's laying it up. The ball, you know, he's got the finger roll, and the ball hits the glass, but it's still on its way up. We get a block. Everybody in the gym, because they all watch college and the NBA, they think that should automatically be two points. And when we don't call it, we're better off getting the rule wrong. We're better off calling it the way that it's called at the higher levels. And no one in the gym would say a word, even though we would be getting it wrong by federation rule. So that's a rule that needs to be cleaned up as well. The other rule that needs to be cleaned up is NCAA men need to go to quarters. Every other level of basketball plays in quarters, not in halves. Yeah. I think that's a TV timeout thing, and they, they're so used to maximizing their. Because I guess I'm sure, it, I'm sure the NBA has maximized TV timeouts too, and they figured yeah. it out. Well, they got an extra eight minutes too, so you got. I mean, you're you're essentially if you go to quarters, you would be taking out one of the under four timeouts that you would have in a twenty minute half. But listen, there's plenty of ways to work around that. Whether you you know, you just go with another TV timeout with the first coach's timeout, which we already do anyway. Maybe the, you do it with a, the second one as well. I mean, there's, there's plenty of ways that smart people could work this out. But, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, again, uniformity of rules. I'll say it so I'm blue in the face. Everybody else plays four rules. quarters. Yes, but no uniform not, rules. Not rules about uniforms. Correct. Maybe that's what they're getting wrong. Is we've been talking about uniformity, and they keep bringing in these uniform rules. Yeah. Any and other? I like Adam what he said earlier. Let's bring the jump balls back. I mean, mm. I, I, the arrows. That's part of my game. Yeah, I would love to see you know a good defensive play late. And you got two guys on the floor or two gals on the floor, and the two that tie it up or the two that go up. Let's toss it up. I completely disagree. <laughs> oh, not not because not because <laughs> it, of what you're thinking. But I'm thinking of the freshman girls game, the JV boys game, where they have, you know, 15 and 20 of those. That is true. It slows the game down. Now we got to get everybody lined up, and nobody knows where to stand. At the yeah. lower levels, really. That is true. Because uh, I would, I would miss watching the referees in those games switch the whistle from one pocket to the other so often. Yeah, that is fun to watch. Yeah. The other thing that I would take away, and I think you know, all of us agree on this. Um, and I don't think the coaches understood this. This 
pregame meeting that we have to to have. The what? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 listen, we are the adjudicators. We are the ones that are told to, you know, we have to do things and our governing body requires us to do this. I will tell you, I think it's I think it's silly. Nobody wants to do it. And it it honestly can create animosity if, if done incorrectly. This past year, we had at least seven uh seven varsity games and probably about 20 JV games where we had a technical foul at the coaches meeting. So we, it just creates a potential uh, issue as opposed to, to not. I, that is astounding. I, I, I can't add anything to it. I mean, the coaches that uh, had the privilege or, most of them would probably say it wasn't the privilege of having me walk on the floor for a game this year. Um, I had my own way of handling that. Um, I'm not, I'm with you. I, I it just, I don't understand the purpose of it. It hasn't added one thing to the game to make it better. Um, it's another administrative headache and it was so dismissed by most coaches. I'll say this. I had more conversations with coaches pregame about the absurdity of this implementation than I ever had prior to it being implemented where, you know, again, you would go over and shake hands at the end of the game, share a few words, maybe a joke or two, and then go. I actually had a lot of dialogue trying to avoid the dialogue because people wanted to talk about the absurdity of this. So I, I hopefully um, feedback's being given and, you know, you hope somebody will listen and decide that, hey, maybe that wasn't the best idea I ever had, but we'll see. Hey, as a as a youth baseball coach, I enjoy going to the plate conference and the umpires asking me if my players are properly equipped and dressed. And, I'm, and I always say, I don't know, I didn't dress them. Um, it doesn't go over very well with most of these guys, I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> they just want to hear the yes. They, they want to hear the yes. Even when I nod my head, they're like, can, we, can you verbalize that? I'm like, all right, yeah, that, yeah, sure. They're properly equipped and dressed, yes. So we've been at it for about an hour, a little over an hour, boys. So um, any, any other rule changes that you guys want to bring up? I think we've kicked this around enough today. No, I think this can serve as the uh, preseason clinic for, for most officiating groups. I think I mean, we've covered it all. Maybe you just all should adopt it. Yeah, maybe we just – uh, Sign your little note card and send it in. Say you attended a rules question. <laughs> That's right. This is it. That that would be more well organized than our previous rules clinic meeting <laughs> before the start of the 2022-2023 season. Which we'll do the old soupy sales. If you like this uh, podcast and you want it to count towards your uh, your um, season requirement, just send us a dollar in the in the mail, and we'll we'll put the inverted. <laughs> <laughs> have your mom and dad send us a dollar the uh honestly if you've made it this long either you're really there's something um, wrong with you you're really gung-ho about officiating and if you are you should come to the steve gordon basketball officials camp there's a shameless plug um it's only one session this year we were going to have two sessions but it's it's shifted to one session june 23rd through 25th you can go to uh, the Steve Gordon uh, Basketball Officials Camp website, which is www.sgboc.com. We have roughly about eight spots remaining. So if you are uh, an up-and-coming official, want to learn how to be a three-person and and be able to come to a, a great teaching camp, we'd love to have you. Um, otherwise, you are either a family friend or uh, you need some help. And if you need some help, we have some hotline numbers we can give to you. So, uh, but in all seriousness, we're, we're glad that you stuck around. We appreciate the opportunity to be able to, to have some fun, especially at Mike Preston's expense. And, uh, you know, Dickie, you got any last words you want to share before I kick it over to Adam? No, man. Always a pleasure to be on these things. Let's, uh, Let's talk about fun stuff next time instead of uniform changes, for God's sakes. It's uniformity. Gosh, we, we got to figure that out. Well, well as we, always, we yep. I was going to say, as always, it's it's just great to have Dickie on, and we're excited. And, and again, congratulations on the Ralph Gordon Award winner. It is the highest 
uh, award that a basketball official for Cardinal basketball officials can receive. And you both received it. And it's, uh, it was wonderful to be present to see that with, uh, with Dickie receiving that this year. So pretty damn Adam, cool. Adam, as always, you have the last word. Thanks again for joining us today. And we certainly hope that this is the only inadvertent whistle in your day. Let the rain wash away all the pain of yesterday. I know my kingdom awaits and they've forgiven my mistakes. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Tell the world I'm coming. I'm back where I belong. Yeah, I never felt so yeah. strong. Yeah. I'm feeling like there's nothing I can't try And if you with me, put your hands high, put your hands high.